Well, it is good to be with you tonight. Um, if we haven't met, my name's Brandon. I'm one of the members of the teaching team here at Elements, and uh, so glad you're here tonight. We're continuing in our series, which we've entitled Jesus And. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, looking at uh, the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, and now we come in these final weeks to his death and resurrection. And, you know, today is Palm Sunday. It's a, a day that we remember uh, the Sunday uh, before Jesus would give up his life on the cross as he comes into Jerusalem riding on the donkey and, and the people are excited. There's this, this messianic expectation that, that perhaps uh, this guy, Jesus, perhaps he uh, is the long-awaited Messiah. And so they're waving uh, palm branches or leafy branches of some kind. They're laying their coats down on the road for him, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But you see, crowds are an interesting thing because they can turn very quickly, and that would happen just a few days later. Jesus would find himself falsely accused and standing before Pilate, the Roman prefect. And even though Pilate knew that, that Jesus was innocent, he was afraid of the crowds. And so he condemned Jesus to die on a cross, the most brutal, inhumane form of execution that's probably ever existed. And for us, 2,000 years later, we look at the cross, and because of our culture, uh, because we've grown up with it, it's just kind of there. In fact, in many ways, we've kind of made the cross almost safe or or sanitary in some ways. You know, you can go to Hallmark, you can buy a, uh, an adorable little precious moments with a nice little cross on it and a Bible verse, John 3.16, or some other, you know, verse about God's love for us. You can walk down uh, the aisle and you can see, um, you know, you can see the Easter cards there and there's a drawing and it's, you know, it's a cross on a hill, a green hill with a little tomb down below and the sun is out. And, and you know, we've just, we've kind of just, made the cross something that's just, it's a part of our everyday life. It's a part of our culture because of our history. We put up decorations in our house. We, we wear it around our neck. We wear earrings. I can remember being 11 years old and I'd saved my money and I went down to the local Christian bookstore by my house and I bought a cross necklace. Man, was I cool back then. Or so I thought. The cool thing went away a while ago. So, and so, it's this incredible thing, if you think about it, that the cross, this horrible form of torture, would become something that we would just almost treat as, as a cultural icon, or in some ways even a, a status symbol. You look at a, a rapper or an athlete who has millions and millions of dollars, and they get these you know, big platinum or gold crosses with diamonds all over them. They're worth tens of thousands of dollars, and it's just it's a piece of jewelry, but it doesn't really have any significance. Nobody looks at that and thinks about what it actually symbolized 2,000 years ago. They simply get caught up in, in the or, ornate uh, factor of the jewelry. They're looking at the diamonds or the gold, and they're just they're wowed by it. Or you have athletes, right? This is my favorite thing. Baseball players, right? They'll get up to the plate and they'll take out their necklace and they'll do this, right? And then they'll, they'll make the sign of the cross and then they'll, they'll step in, right? And then they strike out and it's strange. After they strike out, they don't go back to the dugout and, and point to the heavens and make the sign of the cross, right? No, it's only when they get a hit or a home run or something great that they do that. It's just, it's interesting that the cross is so much a part of our culture, especially here in America, 
because of our history, and in many ways we've made it a kind of safe and, and sanitary. And even if you look at some of the movies, uh, like the Jesus film or the Passion of the Christ, where directors and filmmakers and actors have tried to capture just some of the, the horrors of crucifixion, even that's a little, a little safe, isn't it? Because it's on the other side of the screen. It's not right there in front of us. But in the first century, crucifixion, was a totally different thing. In the first century, there wasn't a person alive who needed to know what crucifixion was all about because they'd seen it. And it was a horrifying thing. The Jews believed uh, because of a verse in Deuteronomy that talks about uh, a curse being on anyone that hanged on a tree, that if you were, were hung on a tree, that, that you were a cursed individual, that you must have done something and you were under a curse from God. The writer of Hebrews says that, that Jesus went to the cross and when he did so, he went there despising or, or scorning the shame. There was an incredible amount of shame associated with crucifixion. The apostle Paul says that, that the message of the cross, the idea that, that God would use the cross to reconcile the world to himself, that's, that's foolishness to the world. It doesn't make sense. Because in the first century, crucifixion was a terrible, horrific form of execution reserved for only the most hardened and unrepentant criminals. It was reserved for people who'd committed treason. And the condemned would, would oftentimes be made to carry a, a, a crossbeam, a straight crossbeam. And they'd carry or drag that, sometimes it would weigh as much as 100 pounds, and they'd, they'd drag it outside of the city. And then they'd be tied, probably with some ropes or some vines, they'd be tied down, and then they'd have a spike driven through their wrist or their hand. And then the soldiers would, would take that beam, and they'd put it up on a post, and they'd bend the legs, and they'd drive a third spike through the feet. And you know, so oftentimes, in the, the pictures and in the movies, the individual on the cross, usually Jesus, is, is kind of up high and we're looking at, at them. But most historians and scholars believe that individuals were actually crucified much lower to the ground, maybe six or seven feet high, which makes sense if you think about it because this was Rome's prime deterrent. This was the message that you do not go against Rome. And they wanted people to be able to look the victim in the eye. They wanted them to be able to smell the smells of rotting flesh, to hear their cries as these individuals hung there, not just for hours, but sometimes days at a time. See, the Romans had, had perfected crucifixion. You could last for days on a cross. Because, see, you don't die from a loss of blood. You die on the cross usually because of, of a cardiac failure of some kind or asphyxiation because when your hands are out and you're, you're suspended down, the weight of gravity is, is crushing your chest cavity and you can't get a breath in. And so you'd push up on your feet to get a breath. And, of course, as you do that, the nail that's in your feet is grinding against it and you're feeling the excruciating pain from that. In fact, our word excruciating, it comes from two Latin terms, ex cruciatus. Literally, it means out of crucifying. The very word excruciating comes 
from this idea of crucifixion. Crucifixion is what it means to be in unspeakable pain. And to an individual in the first century, crucifixion was not a mark of honor. It certainly wasn't a piece of jewelry you wore around your neck. It was a mark of shame. It was something to be avoided at all costs. And yet, and yet, in the wisdom of God, he took something so horrible and made it so beautiful. Something that we can think about and sing about and meditate on and worship as a result of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're not a Christian. Man, I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Because what we're going to talk about tonight and what we're going to celebrate next week when we just go full on celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the hope that we have in him, the hope that we have of a life filled with purpose and meaning and, and knowing that we can have a relationship with a God who loves us and delights in us, knowing that we can, can spend eternity with that God. I hope you'll come back next week too because what we're going to talk about stands at the epicenter of human history. And you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to know not only what happened, but why it matters. Why in 2016 is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? Why does that matter for you? Why is that significant? Tonight, as simply as possible, we're going to try to answer this question. Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus, innocent man, willingly give up his life. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. Why would Jesus do that? And you know, there's a lot of places we could go. We could go really all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to, to the garden and the creation and the way God intended it to be. And then we could go all the way to the, the fall and talk about this break in the relationship between humanity and God that was a result of sin. We could talk about Abraham and the covenant that was made, that God made, that, that through Abraham the whole world would be blessed. We could talk about the sacrificial system, but we've been going through the Gospel of Luke in this series. And tonight I want to look at what Luke has to say about the crucifixion, because there's actually a couple of verses, and, and we'll point it out when we get there. There's actually a couple of verses that that Luke talks about that are unique to his Gospel. It's unique to his account of the life of Jesus. And as we look at this, and as we look at some of the verses that surround it, we're going to find an answer to this question, why did Jesus die? So if you have your Bibles, you can go with me to Luke chapter 23. We're going to pick this up starting in verse 20, uh, 32. rather. If you have your uh, smartphone or your electronic device, you can, can go there in the Bible app, or you can download the YouVersion app. It's a free Bible app. And uh, we put some notes in there. We put the scripture reading in there so you can follow along. We're going to pick this up in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. So Jesus has already been betrayed. He's already been handed over to the religious leaders. They've falsely accused him. They've brought him to Pilate. Uh, he went to Herod. He went back to Pilate. Pilate said, look, the guy's innocent, um, but he was afraid of the crowds. He was afraid of what they might do. And so he gave in to their demands and their shouts to crucify Jesus. And so we pick this up starting in verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. 
And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Think about that. Here you are being subjected to that. And yet Jesus prays to his heavenly father. He cries out, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see, there's no disputing or denying the historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under the Roman prefect Pontius Pilate. Even an atheist will admit to that because you can't get around that. But the question that everybody has to wrestle with is what's the significance of that? Now think about this. Here's Jesus. He's laying down his life and yet he prays, Father, forgive them. See, something special is happening here. This is, this is not an ordinary crucifixion. This is not a, just an innocent man dying. This is a, a special man who's dying. A man who has been sent by God, and who himself was God. 100% God, 100% man. This beautiful, mysterious truth. And here he is, the God-man, laying down his life. Verse 35, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Now this is where we kind of get into the unique part. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. And see, some of you are here, and and maybe if you're honest, um, it's a little weird to be in church. In fact, maybe you agreed to come because your friend said, look, it's church, but it's not in a church, it's in a school. And you're like, hey, okay, I can do that, right? Because if you're honest, maybe there's some stuff in your past that you kind of hope nobody finds out about. And you've convinced yourself that because of this, that God could never love you, that God could never accept you. And I want you to see something in these verses. I want you to see yourself as this criminal because the truth is all of us are this man. All of us are separated from God by our sin. And here's a guy, clearly whatever he did was bad. You didn't just crucify someone for no reason. It could have been murder. He could have been a part of a rebellion. He could have, you know, tried, been trying to start an uprising against Rome. We don't know. Here's a guy, and I promise you, whatever he's done is worse than what you've done. And I want you to look at what Jesus says to him in this moment. I want you to, to watch the way Jesus responds, because this is the same invitation and response 
that Jesus offers to you. He says in verse 43, Jesus answered him, and he said, truly I tell you, today, not in the future, but today, you will be with me in paradise. Friends, it is never too late to turn to Jesus. Think about it. I mean, this guy, it's not like, it's not like he could, you know, it's not like he said, hey, God, okay, you know, I, I have done some really bad stuff. I admit it. But I'll tell you what. From this point on, with everything I've got, I'm going to live for you. Right? And, and the guy's like, buddy, you're not going anywhere, right? You only got a few hours left. That's not much of a commitment. But Jesus sees right past that. He sees the man's heart. And what Jesus is looking for is not perfect faith, but faith in him. See, it's not the quality of our faith that determines how God feels about us. It's the object of our faith. Who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in? to forgive your sins. And and in this moment, this man, he recognizes in some way that something unique is happening. And he says to Jesus, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, please remember me. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me in the place of the righteous. Now, on what basis Can Jesus make a claim like that? On what basis, what assurance can Jesus offer that this will, in fact, happen? And we see the answer to that in the verses that follow. Verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. The curtain that Luke talks about uh, was like a 60-foot high, 30-foot wide curtain that hung in, in the Jewish temple. It separated the holy place from the most holy place, or sometimes you'll see it referred to as the holy of holies. In the Old Testament, back in the tabernacle, uh, it was a place where the Ark of the Covenant was and what the uh, holy of holies was was the place where once a year once a year only the high priest could enter in and what he would do is he would he would sacrifice a perfect unblemished bull and he would take the blood from that bull and he'd go in to the holy of holies and he would sprinkle the blood around uh, the mercy seat and around the ark of the covenant to make atonement or to make restitution or payment for his sins and for the sins of his family. And then he'd go back out and he'd sacrifice a goat, a perfect, unblemished goat. And he'd take the blood from that goat and he'd enter back in a second time into the Holy of Holies and he'd sprinkle the blood around the Ark of the Covenant on the mercy seat to make atonement, to make restitution for the sins of the people of Israel. And of course, all that was 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 a once-a-year foreshadowing of the once-and-for-all sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life. Therefore, he could offer himself on our behalf 
as a perfect substitute, that he could give up his life for our sins, that, that he could offer himself as a way for us to be made right with God. See, when you ask this question, why did Jesus die? Jesus died so that we could be in a right relationship with God and enjoy him forever. Jesus died so that we could be in a right relationship with God and enjoy him forever. See, our sin had separated us from God. Sin carries with it a penalty. Sin carries with it a price. Sin brings with it death. Everywhere there's sin, there's death. There's relational death, there's physical death, and there's spiritual death. Our sins brought with them a price. It was a price that we could not pay. And into that picture stepped Jesus. And he offered himself on our behalf. And when Jesus went to the cross, what happened is what we just sang about, that all of God's wrath, his holy and just wrath against sin, was poured out on Jesus, that it was turned away from us, and Jesus instead absorbs that. And even though Jesus was perfect, he took that sin, that wrath-absorbing sin, on himself, and he became a substitute for us. And his blood becomes the means, the eternal means, of making atonement for our sins. And so here's what that means. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never uh, come to a place in your life where you have laid down uh, your life and said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to let you be in charge. I'm going to turn my life over to you. I'm going to trust in what you did on my behalf. I'm going to trust in you as my substitute. I'm going to trust in you to make me right with God. See, here's the incredible thing about Christianity. This is why it's the best news in the world. This is why I I'd simply, and I'd, I'd say this with all sincerity, I don't understand why everyone wouldn't want to embrace this. Christianity is sometimes people say, well, it's exclusive because it teaches that Jesus is the only way. And that's true. But it's also the most inclusive belief system in the world. Because it says that all are welcome. That all who come to a place in their life where they put their faith in Jesus, that they will find forgiveness of their sins, that they will find a right relationship with God. Every other religion talks about what we have to do to get back to God. And Christianity says there's nothing you can do to get back to God on your own. And so God himself took care of it. God sent his son, Jesus. He took on flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. And like we celebrate next week, he rose again to prove that he had defeated the power of sin and death. That his payment and his sacrifice was acceptable as a once and for all substitute for our sins. And you see, at some point, every single one of us has to decide, what am I going to do about Jesus? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or, or maybe you kind of, you grew up in a Christian home, and so you'd call yourself a Christian, but, you know, faith is not something that's really that important to you. You have to wrestle with this question, what am I going to do about Jesus? Even just from a historical standpoint, what am I going to do? How am I going to explain the fact that there was a guy 
who was crucified. Crucifixion was not something that people rallied around in the first century. There was no organized government behind it. In fact, Rome tried to squash out Christianity and it only spread faster. That Jesus' death and resurrection turned 11 cowards into 11 of the boldest men the world has ever known. And they went around and they proclaimed not just what they believed, but they proclaimed what they saw. They said, you killed him and God raised him from the dead. We've seen him. Now repent, turn from your sins, and instead place your faith and trust in what Jesus did. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've done that? And if not, then why not tonight? Why wait any longer? Why not tonight, right now, where you're at, just say, you know what, Jesus? I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I admit that I'm a sinner and that I'm separated from you. And I trust fully in what you did on my behalf. I turn from my sin and I, in faith, embrace you as my Lord and Savior. See, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we're saved. It's not by any good works. It's not by anything we do. It's solely on the basis of what Christ has done. He offers us the gift. Have you received that gift. And you're saying, I don't know. It's, you know, I've got questions. I've, there's just, there's some wrestling. Hey, that's okay. Because I got more good news. God is patient. Peter says that, that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone would come to a place of repentance, meaning a, a place where they turn from their sins and instead turn and trust Jesus and what he did on their behalf on the cross. So why not make tonight the night when you do that. And if that's you and you're saying, yeah, I, I want to do that right now. I've done that. Great. As we sing the final song, we'll take communion in a little bit. Just come on over here. Uh, I'll be right over here. I'd love to pray with you, answer any questions you have, give you a Bible if you don't have one, and, and just celebrate with you because that's the best decision you could ever make. And many of us have made that decision. And for those of us that have made that decision, maybe your next step uh, is to get baptized in a few weeks. April 17th, we're going to have a, an after party and a baptism celebration. Maybe it's time for you to go public and you say, you know what, uh, I've been trusting in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but now I'm, I want to show everyone uh, that reality. I want to show everyone what Jesus has done in my life. You want to celebrate that. So afterwards, you go out to the next step table and you sign up for baptism. Or maybe you've already done that. And for those of us that have, maybe this week is just an opportunity to worship and celebrate and spend some time reflecting on what Jesus did for us. In your version notes, there's actually a reading plan uh, that just kind of walks through some of the scriptures. It starts today with the Palm Sunday, and it goes all the way through uh, and reading with the resurrection next Sunday on Easter. And just read through that each day. Pray on it. Meditate on it. Praise God for what he's done. Thank him for saving you. Because the truth is, none of us deserved it. None of us had anything in us that, that made God look down and say, oh, there's such a good person. I'm just going to save him. I'm going to save her. No, out of his mercy and his grace and his immense, immeasurable love, God poured out his love through Jesus who invites us to come, to be restored to a right relationship with God and to enjoy him forever. See, it's not that we just enter into a relationship where God says, eh, okay, we're cool now. I, I guess I'll have to deal with you. No, it's a life of 
purpose and meaning and joy that we're restored to, that even now in this broken world, we begin to experience a little taste of what's coming one day, one day in the future when there's a new heavens and a new earth. We have the assurance that we no longer have to fear death, that death no longer means eternal separation from God in hell, but because of what Jesus did and because we placed our faith in Christ, in Christ alone, that we've been restored to this right relationship with God and we can enjoy him forever. It's the best news in the world. And we have a whole week now coming up to focus on that and to celebrate that. So let's worship that way this week. In just a minute, we're going to take communion. That's another great way that we can worship and celebrate as we come off of talking about Jesus and the cross. And, you know, we take communion each week, but it it holds special significance on a night like tonight when we have just for 30 minutes or so been reminded of just how much it cost Jesus, of what he went through on our behalf. You see, the night before uh, Jesus was crucified, he was gathered with his disciples, and he took a loaf of bread, and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you, and he passed it around. And he said, this cup of wine, it represents a new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He passed it around and they drank. And so when we, when we take the cracker, when we take the cup of juice, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering the broken body of Jesus. We're remembering his shed blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know what you walked in here tonight with. I don't know what sort of burden you're carrying. But here's what I can tell you. That whatever guilt, whatever shame, whatever condemnation you might feel as a result of your sin, if you are a Christian, Jesus has paid it all. And all to him we owe. And so as we spend a few minutes, let's just reflect on that. Let's worship through communion. And then let's worship through singing. As we praise God, as we sing about the cross, this incredible yet horrifying thing that for 2,000 years has been a focal point for Christians, really for all of human history. So let me pray for us. Father, we just, uh, we thank you for what you did on the cross when you sent your son Jesus to die on our behalf. We thank you that uh, that there's nothing we have to do to earn our way back to you. But you've you've made us right with you on the basis of Jesus' blood, his life for ours. That you've taken his righteousness, you've given it over to us. You've credited it to us. And when you look at us, you don't see a sinner, you see a beloved son or daughter of the King. We love you. We praise you. Help us as we go through this week to spend time reflecting on your sacrifice. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.